on one hand, it's, it's difficult to study the pain and suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ when you really look at it. And, I, and I'm, I'm hopeful God will help us do that over the next couple weeks. I think it's something that we, we try to just get past because it is difficult. It's, it's what Jesus went through. You know, he has not even really been tortured yet, but at this point in our text, consider the fact that Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've sent soldiers with swords and staves to arrest this innocent man. He has been brought to a mock trial. And at this trial, false liars, witnesses, false witnesses have been paid to testify against him. At the trial, their stories are so weak and uncollaborated, even though they were pre-thought out, they had nothing to accuse Jesus with. Nonetheless, they have this false trial, they pronounce him worthy of death, and they bring him to Pontius Pilate to have Pilate put him to death because the Jews could not, you know, they couldn't do it themselves, There had to be a legal process, so they bring him before Pilate. Pilate examines him, finds that he's innocent. Pilate hears that Jesus is from Galilee. So Pilate thinks, here's how I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to send him to Herod, who is the ruler of Galilee, and Herod will have to make a decision. Jesus goes to Herod. Herod is kind of a crazy guy. Some considered him a madman, but he just wanted Jesus to do some tricks. He was real interested. Jesus was there, and he was like, wow, the real Christ. Show us some tricks. I've heard of all of your, the, you know, the healings and the things you do. Jesus basically stands silent, does nothing. Herod says, this guy's, you know, not guilty of death, but I don't want anything to do with him. Sends him back to Pilate. Jesus has been, before sent to Pilate, he has been beat by some of those that were there at the mock trial. The Bible tells us they spit upon him. It tells us that they blindfolded him and hit him over the head and then mocked him saying, prophesy to us, who hit you, Christ? Who hit you? His disciples have abandoned him and denied him. Peter has done it three times. And here he stands, innocent, as the crowd is chanting, crucify him. There stands my Savior. Your Savior, if you're a blood-bought, born-again Christian this morning, there He stands, ready to die for me, ready to die for you. As horrendous as this scene is, what follows is horrendous on a whole nother level, as we will see in the weeks to come. But this morning, what I want to do is, just for a moment, gaze away from our Savior, and I want us to look at the dream of Pilate's wife. It's recorded only here in Matthew chapter 27. My commentary this morning will be on the dream of Pilate's wife, but before getting to my major points, the lessons we can learn from this dream There are some things you must understand about Pilate, her husband. And I want to interject 
that it's really important to know these are real people in real time and space that are recorded for us in history. In other words, these are not parables to teach us good lessons. This is not, you know, a story that somebody wrote and put names in, like, what's a good name for the governor? Let's go with Pilate. Pilate was a real man. His actual name was Marcus Pontius Pilate. Pilate died in 36 B.C. He was the governor of Judea, which is the region where Jerusalem was. Because he was the governor of that region, under the leadership of the emperor of Rome named Tiberius, because he was the leader of Judea, it was his responsibility to determine whether or not somebody could be put to death in his city, in his region. This is why the Jews come to him. Now, Pilate was a really wicked man. One of the things that is, uh, history tells us about the governors, Roman governors, placed over regions like Pilate was, Judea, like Herod was, Galilee, one of the things history teaches us is that they were pretty brutal rulers. They had two or three, um, you know, I don't know the right word for it, we'll call them legions of soldiers who were responsible for keeping peace in the entire land. And by peace, what I mean is tamping down revolts. So these police officers, if we want to call them that of that day and time, they were pretty brutal. They had to be because they had such huge territories to keep everybody in check over. And so when there was a revolt, when there was an uprising, the way that they handled things was pretty brutal to make sure that people were afraid of any type of revolt. But Pilate took it on a whole other level. Pilate was known for hiring Jews to assassinate their own people. He would hire Jews to take small knives into large crowds at large gatherings and target people that he thought needed taken out that were a problem for Rome or a problem for Pilate, governor of Judea. He was an evil man. But Pilate finds himself in an odd predicament here. Pilate wants to set Jesus free. You know, that tells us something about Jesus. When one of the most wicked rulers of the day is like, no, there is no way we're putting this man to death. He's innocent. That tells you something about Jesus. But Pilate was in a predicament. Pilate's own sins were catching up to him. Because this very mob that he's trying to silence, he's been in cahoots with before. Josephus, the Roman historian, records for us that at approximately this same period of time in his governorship, that there were Jews that were sending a message to Tiberius, the emperor, with strong complaints of his abuse and murderous ways. And it's highly likely that Tiberius would have heard of these complaints, maybe slapped Pilate on the hand, but continued to allow him to reign. But if another complaint comes, especially the complaint that the Jews were making, 
that this man claims to be a king who is not loyal to Caesar. If he was to let that man go, Pilate would probably lose his position. So Pilate wants to let Jesus go, but he's in a predicament. His sins are surrounding him, and they're starting to catch up with him. He wants to do what is right, but he cannot, unless doing the right thing would mean his end. One of the important lessons that we learn here is that innocence is brave, but guilt is cowardly. Let me explain that. Innocence is brave, but guilt is cowardly. You know when you're truly innocent, and you walk into your integrity, and you stand in righteousness, you've got nothing to be afraid of. The Bible says the righteous are as bold as a lion. But when you are guilty, and you are a hypocrite, when the time comes to stand for what is right, you'll find that you cowered down. Because standing for what is right now might mean harm to yourself. This was the predicament that Pontius Pilate was in. Pilate was intrigued with Jesus. In John chapter 18, as we studied on Wednesday night, we see that Pilate had this meaningful, from Pilate's perspective, philosophical conversation with Jesus. And towards the end, Pilate actually says, you know, Jesus speaks about truth and his followers listening to truth. And Pilate asks this prisoner a philosophical question, wanting a response. Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? Jesus was a prisoner that was different than any prisoner Pilate had ever seen. He'd seen prisoners of two extremes. The zealot, radical person that's ruled by rage, that's willing to die in there for what they believe as a martyr. But that wasn't Jesus. He wasn't this radical zealot. He was calm, and peaceful. On the other hand, Pilate has seen uh, prisoners that have been terrified of what's coming to them, plead for forgiveness, plead to get out, promise to do anything if he would just spare their life. Jesus was neither that. There was a humility about him, an integrity about him, and Pilate knew there is nothing wrong with this man. And all of a sudden, Pilate found himself perplexed. What do I do? The Bible tells us as he was sitting on the judgment seat, I think that's the word that it used, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, yes, that his wife came to him with a dream. I want, I want you to see this final point, and we'll move past the introduction this morning. Pilate is sitting on that judgment seat, that place of judgment, trying to decide, what do I do? This idea has kind of come to life in his mind. I know what I'm going to do. I know. I'm going to... I'm going to force them to choose between Barabbas and Jesus. It's helpful to understand what was happening there. Even though Pilate was this wicked, evil man and ruler, once a year to be gracious, 
he would allow the Jewish people to select one prisoner that they thought was unjustly imprisoned, and he would let that person go. They got to choose. Pilate thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to let him choose. I'm going to give him two choices, and I'm going to make him choose between the worst murderous person amongst them and Jesus. There is no way they'll let that murderer back on the street. Barabbas was an insurrectionist, guilty of murder and leading murders. He was most likely turned in by his own people. Pilate's thinking to himself, there's no way. If I, if I only give him two choices, there's no way they're going to let him back out on the street. They will have to let Jesus go. He's sitting in his judgment seat. He's thinking about this thing. How do I get out of the mess that I'm in? And at that moment is when his wife comes to him and says, I've got something very important to tell you. Do nothing with this righteous man, for I have suffered much about him in a dream. This morning, I want us to look at this dream together. Four observations from the divine dream of Pilate's wife. Number one, we observe God's sovereign power to give all men a chance to repent. I want to define the word sovereign. It's a word that we don't use a lot in normal language. It's important to understand what it means biblically. God is sovereign, and what that means is that he has power over all things and can do what he wants, when he wants, where he wants, how he wants, and he answers to no one. That's what his, He has sovereign power to do anything at all times. Let me tell you what that does not mean. It does not mean that he chooses to use his power in every scenario. Here's an example. God could, because God is God, God could force us to be robots. Obey his word, do what is right, never sin. God could force us to do that, but he chooses not to force us to do that. It's not that he doesn't have the power. God could make a donkey talk if he wants. He can make you do whatever he wants, but he chooses not to. Yet he is sovereign which means if he wanted to, he could. And what we see is God's sovereign power here to give all men one last chance to repent. Here, observe first the divine hand of God in sending this dream. Would you agree with me that if there's anything that would seem exempt from control, it's dreams? Dreams can be some of the most wild, crazy things that make no sense whatsoever. I normally don't remember my dreams, and I feel like God let me remember a dream from last night just to illustrate this point. On the way to church this morning, I told my wife, you're not going to believe this, but I had a dream last night. I almost never remember my dreams, but this is a dream I had. You and I were driving in this truck, and I wanted to wash the windshield, and I pushed the water button to wash the windshield, and the real colorful foam from the car wash came up on the glass. And I'm like, what is going on? And you thought it was really funny, so you're cracking up. And I'm like, 
I'm so intrigued, I just keep pushing the button over and over and over again until finally we ran it dry and there was no more foam to come out, and that's where the dream ends. There, would you agree there's typically no rhyme or reason in dreams at all? Sometimes they are just the most wild, uncontrolled things that exist. And yet we see God in his sovereignty, when he chooses, is even God over our dreams when he wants to be. We see God force a woman to dream a certain dream. And this dream is not just any dream. It is so disturbing that she cannot do nothing about it. Consider the statement when he was on the judgment seat. I don't care if you're married to the President of the United States or some Supreme Court judge or some governor. Would you agree that in most cases, a wife is not going to approach her husband in the middle of one of the most important decisions of his life? Especially about a dream. Could it not wait until he comes home? After he's done with this intense business of his? To share with him there is a dream? No, it is so pressing, and we see the sovereign power of God to move a woman to do something that she would not normally do. And when she comes, she comes with a sense of force. The way she speaks to her husband, the the way she speaks is not the normal way of language that wives would speak to their husband. It's almost a command, have nothing to do with this man, this righteous man. She has to warn him now. She cannot wait. Before he has done anything, before he has laid a single lash to the back of Jesus, she must let him know. She does not say, do a little. Scourge him and let him go. But have nothing to do with this righteous man. Don't lay a finger on him. Don't say a bad word about him. If he must die, do not let him die by your hands. Let it be by someone else's. Have nothing to do with him, for I have suffered many things in a dream concerning him. We see here the divine, sovereign power of God to give all of us a chance to repent. Why do I say that? What was this invention, intervention about? It was not about keeping Jesus from death. A thousand times no. The Bible says Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. The word of God tells us that Jesus was to die for our sins by the predetermined counsel of God Almighty. This was not about stopping the death of Jesus Christ. This was about reaching the conscience of Pontius Pilate. This was about giving him an opportunity to repent. And if he chose not to, it would be with the full knowledge that this man is an innocent man. That is what this is about. Number two. Actually, I want to say one more thing about this. 
This was about God giving evil men one last chance to repent. To those of us that live our lives to reach people for Christ, to those of you who preach the gospel, understand this, God is on our side. Understand the sovereign power of God is behind us. You are not alone when you are living your life to warn the wicked and to win them for Jesus Christ. Number two, notice God's sovereign power not only to give us a chance to repent, but to touch the conscience of each man. How was God going to touch the conscience of Pilate? He has already rejected the voice of Jesus. Peter can't be fetched. He's denied the Lord three times in the last few hours. Even John and the rest of the disciples have abandoned the Lord and at this moment in time lost their witness. Who will God send to touch the conscience of Pilate? None other than his own wife. God knows how to get at men's hearts, no matter how hardened they may be. Never give up on anybody. We see God's pursuit of Pontius Pilate. We have got to believe what God tells us about wicked men. That however hardened they may be, there is nothing that is impossible with God. Pilate was accessible through the dream of his wife. Nobody can deny that Pilate had a good, affectionate wife. The Bible doesn't tell us much more about her than this, but there is historical records that do say more about Pilate's wife. There are some who believe that she actually was saved or turned to faith in Christ in this period of time. There's even a church that's actually named after what they believe was Pilate's wife's name. I can't verify that. So I can't say with absolute certainty those things are true, but here's what we do know. With absolute certainty, she was a woman that loved her husband enough to try to intervene and keep him from doing something that was going to be wicked on a level he had never done. And she comes and she says, I'm troubled. Now, men, I think we would probably understand this better than anybody. There's nothing worse than having a a wife you love Be greatly troubled. We see the sovereignty of God knowing exactly how to touch the conscience of this man. And I will tell you, God knows how to do it with every one of us. He knows how. God has the way of touching your conscience, touching my conscience. God has a way in his divine, sovereign power of touching each one of us, touching our conscience to a way that we are aware that what we are about to do is very wrong and we need to turn. Her dream was of such distress, we don't really know what it was. We don't know what troubled her. Maybe she saw the death of Jesus. Maybe she saw what was about to happen. Maybe she saw his triumphal return and had this vision of how great and righteous this man was and was simply telling her husband, don't do anything with this righteous man. The selection of this pagan wife was no doubt in the infinite wisdom of God. That Pilate might have one last chance to be stopped of his wicked crimes. One of the things 
that really moved me uh, is actually the thing I was crying about at the first service, tears dropping on my notes, was the reality that sometimes when God has to, He uses means that we would not expect. When there was no preacher, no one else to speak to Pilate, God used the most unlikely. We never would have thought of Pilate's wife coming with a message. And what we see is the divine sovereign hand of God to accomplish his purpose and his will, whether you or I can be there and help or not. And there is hope in my heart for this culture, this godless culture, at least this city of mine, friends and family of mine that I know are not right with God. They are living a godless life. They are living in rebellion to God. And I feel like I've said everything that I have to say. I feel like there's nothing else that I can do. I feel like I've lived my life in front of them as well as I know how to do. And I have no more words to say and it feels hopeless. I am reminded that the divine sovereign hand of God is capable of doing all by God's self what I can't do. And I was reminded of when I was saved. And I can't give the story. I don't have time this morning. But I was reminded when I was saved of how God and his divine sovereign power started to get a hold of my life and my heart. There was no Christian there to witness to me. There was no preacher that I was listening to. There was no Christian influence in my life. But the divine sovereign power of God began to bring me to a place of decision by his own will and his own power. And I was so moved this morning as I thought about how God saved a wretch like me. And I was reminded that our God can do anything. There is nobody that's beyond saving. There is nothing that God cannot do. Number three, third observation from this divine dream is that God may force the warning, but he will never force his will upon you. In salvation, the individual salvation of a man or a woman, God will use his divine sovereign power to touch the conscience, to bring a person to a final chance of repentance, but God will not force a person to repent. The word of God says, and I quote, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anybody to perish, but most people do. The Bible says that God does not delight in the perishing of the wicked, yet the wicked do perish. And so what we see is that God will use His divine power to touch the conscience, to awaken us to our crimes against God. So that we have full knowledge that we are headed the wrong way. God will bring us to a place of repentance. God will bring us there almost as against our will. He'll bring us there where we have all of a sudden our, we are awakened. We recognize that we're sinners. We recognize that He is God. We recognize we need to follow Him. But here He leaves us to stand and make a decision. Will I follow what I know is right? Will I follow what I know is true, or will I turn my back on the living God and walk away to my own destruction? Tragically, that's what Pilate does. Why? 
I mean, the best of human means had been employed. Pilate has a face-to-face conversation with Jesus himself. Pilate examines Jesus and is able to tell, nope, this is an innocent man. Then Pilate's wife comes and says, God has revealed to me in a dream, this is a righteous man, don't touch him. And yet with the best of means possible, Pilate still presses forward in his sin. How can that be? There are four major reasons. Number one, self-interest. Pilate had a self-interest. And self-interest can be a very powerful factor. Pilate was afraid of losing his governorship, afraid of losing his position, afraid of losing his wealth, afraid of losing his power. The Jews would be angry if he did not obey their cruel demands. They might complain to Tiberius, and he would lose his lucrative job. The reality is that things like this, things like these are holding some of you captives to sin at this moment. You can't afford to be true and honest. It costs you way too much. You'd lose friends. Your relationships would change with coworkers. You know the will of God and you know what is right, but you renounce Christ by putting him off. Following through in the ways of sin. You're afraid that to be a true Christian would cost you too much. Number two, second reason Pilate pressed forward in his sins because Pilate was a coward. Pilate was a moral coward. And I've already addressed this. When you live in sin and you go forward, and a destructive path of life, you really become a coward, unable to stand for what is right, unable to stand for what is true. Because in the moment when all of a sudden it's like, well, I need to stand for what's right here, you've got all this history. Now all the people that you want to stand against now are going to say, well, what about that? And what about that? And what about that? And what about that? And Pilate was a moral coward. Multitudes of people go to hell because they do not have the courage to fight their way into heaven. The Bible tells us the fearful and unbelieving shall have their portion in the lake of fire. People are afraid of encountering a fool's laugh, so instead they choose to rush into everlasting destruction. They couldn't bear the thoughts of losing old friends, the thoughts of enduring sarcasm from the ungodly, and so they keep their companions and go to hell with them. They don't have the courage to say no. They don't have the courage to swim against the stream. They're cowards. Number three, Pilate was presumptuous. I literally spent five minutes yesterday using thethorus.com and dictionary.com, trying to find a better word than presumptuous. I couldn't. So I want to explain what the word means. It's not a very common word. It means to be cocky, arrogant, 
self-confident or overconfident. And to be presumptuous is to think that you're so clever, you'll find a way around the rules and you don't have to walk like everybody else walks. You don't have to do it like everyone else does it. And we see this in Pilate because you know what Pilate does? Pilate decides, I'm going to push forward with the death of this innocent man, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand up in front of the crowd and wash my hands so that I don't have anything to do with this. He's the one man that had the power to say no. And he thought to himself, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go through with this wicked act, but I'll wash my hands of it. There is no washing your hands of rejecting Jesus. He was presumptuous. He thought that somehow, some way, he was smart enough and wise enough and powerful enough that he could get his way around, and when it was all said and done, everything was still going to be okay. That's one of the things that will keep a person from responding to the clear and direct commands of God to repent or perish, is they're presumptuous. and They'll think, yeah, I can get around this. I'll live my life the way I want. All the rules don't really apply to me. And somehow when it's all said and done, I'll, I'll, I'll outsmart God, I'll outsmart the system, and I'm still going to end up okay. It's presumptuous. And finally, number four, fourth reason, Pilate did not repent. Pilate was double-minded. We see his double-mindedness clearly in the Scriptures. I mean, on one hand, he had a heart to, to do what was right, to let Jesus go. He's trying to figure out how to make it happen. But on the other hand, he had a heart that was utterly selfish and gainful, and he wasn't willing to, he wasn't willing to do the right thing if it meant he was going to lose anything. We have plenty around us who are double-minded, men who run two ways. They seem concerned about their own souls, but when you look at their living, they are far more eager for personal gain. Strange to see a man that would tear himself in two. We've heard of tyrants that would take a prisoner and tie him to horses and then send the horses off in other directions and they would bang against each other until finally limbs would be pulled off of a person and they would die. How wild to think that that's what most people do with their own soul. There are men that have too much conscience to neglect church. Some of you are here today. Too much conscience to be utterly irreligious. But at the same time, not enough conscience to keep you from being a hypocrite. You're double-minded. Men that want to do what's right but it just costs too much. They do not dare lose their worldly pleasures. And yet, meanwhile, they dare the risk of losing their own soul. The fourth thing that we see this morning, I'm undone when we look at the dream of Pilate's wife. We see the overwhelming condemnation of sinners. Pilate was guilty beyond all excuse. I think what I've said up to this point overwhelmingly proves that. He had 
no excuse whatsoever. He deliberately and of his own free will condemned the Son of God to die. And consequently, his condemnation is overwhelmingly just. He had examined the Lord himself and determined this is a righteous man. And his wife had showed up on the scene and said this is a righteous man. Pilate was utterly without excuse. His condemnation that would follow is utterly just. This morning, is there anyone here living your life doing evil deeds, playing the hypocrite, vacillating like Pilate, wanting to do what is right, choosing to do what is wrong, To you, I would say as plain as I know how, stop it. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your sins. Follow Jesus. Obey the Lord with all of your heart all of your mind, all of your strength. Stop playing games with God. The warning to Pilate from his wife was not in some mysterious code. It was clear and pointed. No confusing. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. God's commands to you and I are clear and pointed. Repent, lest you perish. Keep the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your wicked ways. Follow Him with all your heart. These are clear. They are pointed. And consequently, all of us are without excuse. To those who reject the message to those who push forward in their sin, as did Pilate, your condemnation will be overwhelmingly just. It will not be because you did not know. It will not be because God did not touch your conscience. It will not be because you didn't know right from wrong. It will not be because you were spoken to in riddles. It will be because of your own conscience. You consciously chose to say no to the things of God and to follow forward in your own sinful pursuit. And the condemnation of sinners is overwhelmingly just. Because God always does His part. This morning, I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would get in place. I want to close with this thought. The Bible talks about in the place of hell, one of the terms that is used is it is the place where the worm dieth not. So it's a strange statement that does require a little bit of 
wondering what it's talking about. Most of us believe it is a reference to the thought that in hell forever and ever and ever, our minds, our minds will go back to the places where God came in a very clear moment of decision and we said no. We'll never be able to forget it. And one of the things that I find interesting about this point When Pilate came the second time to try to get the crowd to release Barabbas, the second time, he asked, some of the manuscripts record for us, Pilate used these words. Whom shall I release to you, Barabbas or this righteous man? Where did he get that term from? It's his wife's dream. And I... I see Pilate from the moment he hears that do nothing with this, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I see that word going over in his mind over and over again. Righteous man. He's a righteous man. He's a righteous man. He's a righteous man. Not only does that mean that he's not guilty of death, but that what he does is right. That he's a good man. That he's a man that could help me. That he's a man that I should follow. He's a righteous man. And that word stuck in his head like an arrow and he couldn't get it out. And it even comes out of his mouth right before he puts the man, uh, you know, sentences to death. It comes out of his own mouth. What will I do with this righteous man? And we see God again in his divine sovereign power. Able to drive home in the mind and in the heart of even the most wicked man like Pontius Pilate. It was there. It was implanted. There was no denying it. Pilate saw what he needed to see. He knew what he needed to know. God had done his part as much as God could possibly do. And now it was Pilate's choice. I ask you the question this morning, what about you? I know this. I know for a fact Most of the people under the sound of my voice are saved this morning. I know that because I know many of you. I've witnessed your lives. And those of us who we can say that about ourselves, we need to thank God for the divine sovereignty of God to change our lives and to reach us when we were sinners. And we need a sense of awe and truly being overwhelmed because our condemnation would have been overwhelmingly just. This morning, we need to thank Jesus for that. But there have got to be a few people here this morning, the Holy Spirit is dealing with your heart, and you know it. Yes, you've learned how to don the doors of a church building. But you are a hypocrite, and you know it. You're still living in your sins. You're still following your own ways. You're still a coward in the face of temptation. This morning, the word is clear. The Holy Spirit's dealing with your heart. And this could be as it was for Pilate. Your final warning. Nothing else needs to be said. Nothing could be clearer. You don't need to be brought to another moment of understanding. You clearly understand. You know exactly what you need to do. This morning, if that's you, I plead with you. I command you. I do everything within my power to urge you, don't 
leave this morning without dropping to your knees and getting honest with God and confessing your sins and settling it in your heart and your mind that today is the day I turn my life to Jesus. No more games, no more hypocrisy. Today is the day I truly become a follower of Jesus.